Hey, uh, one thing I do, just realizing that it's St. Nicholas Day, one thing I like to con- kind of drop on my kids in terms of facts about St. Nicholas. One, he's lived a really long time. It's pretty amazing, right? Like he was in the 300s and he still lives to this day, right, parents? And so, uh, but the other part of it is actually there was a controversy called the Arian Controversy, which uh, why we wrote the, the Nicene Creed was written to dispel that. But uh, Arius was the heretic who was putting out this controversy and true story, or at least legend has it, that St. Nicholas slapped him. And so, true story, Santa Claus slapping people is, is a real thing. That happened. It's a true story. Or legend. Either way. I choose to believe that it's true. Regardless, uh, we are continuing our series in the book of Ruth. Uh, we're going to talk today about hope. And one thing I, just, it, I find really interesting about our culture is that we have this idea of hope. It's just a common theme that we have this time of year. And you see it on billboards, you see it on front doors, you see it on wreaths and ornaments. But you ever notice no one's asking hope in what? It's almost this like generic, bland understanding of hope. Hope in what? Hope has to be in something or someone. So hope in, maybe it's hope in who? Or is it hope in Santa? Is it hope that you'll get what you want for Christmas? Is it hope that everyone will have the Christmas spirit and that will empower up Santa's sleigh so he can deliver all the gifts to boys and girls around the world? Is that what our hope is in? Or is it hope for a better world? Or is it hope that somehow your family will resolve its differences by the time you gather on Christmas Day? Right? (laughs) Or is it hope that your boss won't catch the fact that you slipped out on the company Christmas party? Like, is that what we're hoping for? Hope in what or in who? In the Old Testament, the first part of our Bibles, the word hope, when it's used, gives a picture of a cord that's attached to something. So I hate rock climbing. Hate it, absolutely hate it, because I am a flawed human being. So one of my, maybe my only flaw, just kidding, is that I'm scared of heights. Uh, but I went one time, and this is when I realized I hated rock climbing, because I was, but I was crazy. I knew I hated heights, and I'm scared of heights, but I'm going to go rock climbing because I'm crazy like that. And I was there, I went up to the top of the rock, and I am, like, holding on to this cord for dear life. And I was trembling, but the cord's holding me up because it's attached to the rock, See, the cord is only as good as the thing or the object it's attached to. So in the same way, your hope is only as good as the object it's attached to. So that if you slip, you don't come crashing down. And biblical hope, as the Bible sees it, is hope in God who's reliable and who's worthy of our trust. So what we'll see today is that God in his providence provides us an object of hope that's worthy and reliable. And as we see, he provides that to us in the Redeemer, Jesus. See, our hope isn't generic. The, the hope cord of your life isn't a generic, bland, cultural Christmas type of hope. The object of our hope, the thing it's attached to, and what we can hold on to dear life to, even when you're trembling, 
that thing must be worthy. It must be reliable. Because if it's not, you'll come crashing down. So the object of our hope must be first worthy. And we see that in Ruth chapter 2, 1 through 2. We're kind of going to do a quick, like, kind of like a flyby of this chapter. I'll do a lot of summarizing, but let's just jump in at verse 1, which is always a good place to jump in. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. So verse 1 is like the narrator just saying, hey, by the way, there's this guy named Boaz. And then the story picks up again in verse 2. And Naomi said to her, go, my daughter. See, the object of your hope must be worthy of it. It must be worthy of it. You can't just go around giving your hope to anyone or anything. It's got to be worthy of it. Naomi, from chapter 1, we know, lost all hope. She lost all hope. So she says to Ruth and Orpah, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. You hear that loss of hope in her voice? The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then verse 20 of chapter 1, she says to the women in Bethlehem, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Do you hear that? Naomi's lost all hope because her identity is connected to something unworthy of it. Young people in the ancient world and in much of the world today, family is everything. So there was no individual identity back then. It was all family identity. So if your dad was a carpenter, you were a carpenter. If your family was poor, you were poor. There's no like getting out of it. There's no, hey, let's work hard and we'll pick up second jobs and we'll make money and we'll eventually work out of our poverty. So you're poor and you always will be poor because your family is poor. Or if your father was the king, you're the next king. Why? Because you earned it? Because you ran an election and you got voted in? No. Because your dad was king. You, therefore, are king. See, you were who your family members were. And so all of their identity in the ancient world was attached to their family. So when Ruth, sorry, and Naomi particularly, loses her family, when her husband and her sons die, her identity is crushed. And what does she do? She blames God. Because her hope, or particularly her identity, was attached to something not worthy of it. But God sees our lack of options as an abundance of opportunity. God sees your and my lack of options, and he says, that's an abundance of opportunity for me. So in the Old Testament, God graciously provided a way for families to continue. God understood that family identity was everything. He may realize that they oftentimes put too much weight in family identity, but God is gracious and he loves us just as we are, oftentimes meets us where we are, even if we're wrong, and provides a way for families to continue through what they called a kinsman redeemer. 
And it worked out like this. I'm the oldest of four brothers. If, I, if we all lived back then, if I died and Amanda had no sons, the brother right below me, my brother Jonathan, would marry her. And if Jonathan died without her having sons, my brother Philip would marry her. And if Philip dies without Amanda having sons, my brother Aaron, God bless her if that were to happen. Now, he, he knows I love him. He would marry her. Which, if you remember in the New Testament, it's the hypothetical scenario the Sadducees throw at Jesus. Hey, what happens if there's seven brothers and all of them die and the wife still has no sons? Whose wife is she in the resurrection? And they're trying to disprove the resurre- resurrection. Which is like, what you never really want to do anything you read in the New Testament is try to trap Jesus. It's actually really bad news. So if, if you recall, what Jesus says is something like this. Hey, maybe you should read your Bibles better. Which is like never what people who go to church want to hear is you don't read your Bible the right way. But anyway, regardless, kinsman redeemer might seem odd to us. It might seem weird to us. But actually, it was a gracious provision from God in a world where family identity was everything. You don't have sons and your husband died. Let's provide one for you. Let's provide a husband for you. Particularly because women weren't able to just like go out and start working at Starbucks. It doesn't exist. So God provided kinsmen redeemers because he keeps his promises. Because back in Genesis, God promised to Abraham that he would make him a great nation. That the family lines would never die out, but that instead what would happen is that they would become more numerous than the stars in the sky. See, God in his promises is able to make sure he comes through on his promises. And what we call that is providence. God in his providence, is a better way of saying it, is able to make sure he comes through on his promises. You might feel like you're out of options. You might feel like you have nowhere to go. You might feel like life has hit you so hard. God sees us when we're in those situations as an opportunity for him to come through on his promises to you. And he does this in his providence. Providence is just a fancy word of saying that God knows the future because he determined it. It's not that the future, the future never surprises God. What happens tomorrow doesn't surprise God. God has determined what tomorrow will look like. So he knows the future because he's determined what it's going to look like. So God knew Naomi and Ruth's husbands would die. He determined it. As hard as that is for us to swallow, he determined that this would be the case. But also in his providence, he saw their lack of options as an abundance of opportunity for him to keep his promises in Boaz, who will become Ruth's redeemer. Spoiler alert, will become Ruth's redeemer. But who isn't just any redeemer? Verse 1 says he's a worthy one. See, don't allow your problems to cloud out your view of God's providence. Oftentimes what we do is we let our problems in the present cloud out God's providence. Which is why Jesus says don't worry about tomorrow. God's already determined it. 
It says when you reach into tomorrow, you're borrowing things you're going to worry about tomorrow and then bringing them into today, and you can't carry that. God's already determined it. So you might only see clouds, but God promises that he's working behind the scenes in his providence to keep his promises to you. So Ruth, what she does is she goes out to glean grain so Naomi and she can eat. And God also in his providence made a provision for people like Ruth and Leviticus. And this is what the author wants us to see is how God is orchestrating all this. God has planned all this. He's determined all this. That God in his love and his grace made sure that no one in Israel would ever go hungry. Could you imagine a world where that was the case, no one ever goes hungry? And God created a way for that, that when God's people harvested their fields, they're supposed to keep parts of their harvest, like the ends of their harvest, for the poor and the sojourner. But what we know from history, and we even know from verse 7, because Ruth has to ask permission to do this, even though God commanded that this would, ha- this would be the case, that this needed to be the case for the poor and the sojourner. Not everyone did it. Otherwise, Ruth wouldn't have to ask. She could just do it. But God, in his providence, has her end up in Boaz's field. Look at verse 3. And she happened to come to part of the field belonging to Boaz. Do you hear the providence there? how God is orchestrating that, she ends up coming, like, slow down a second. Enter this story. You're Ruth. You heard about this provision, and you decide you're going to go out, but you know not everyone is welcoming to the poor and the sojourner, but you are a poor and a sojourner, and you need to eat. And you happen to stop at Boaz's field, who Boaz does keep God's law, So she's able to glean from the fields. Do you see what's happening? Do you see how God's working this? So verse 4, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, And with your spirit. No, I'm just kidding. The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young woman, young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. It's interesting. Do you always notice it's always Ruth the Moabite? And every time it's talking about Naomi, it's always her daughter-in-law. It's interesting. See, Bo- what happened here is Boaz comes to his field He greets the men in charge in the Lord. Which actually, remember, this is the backdrop is judges. This is remarkable that there's a man. Again, guys, slow down. Enter the story. She ends up at a field where a man actually loves the Lord when the judges is happening. Where everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. She ends up there. And he sees Ruth, and he asks the men in charge who she is, and they say what? She's a Moabite who came back with Naomi from Moab. See, Boaz is a worthy redeemer, and he goes beyond expectations how he treats the Moabite Ruth. 
See, Moabites were descendants of Abraham's nephew, Lot. And in Judges, we know that Moabites frequently harassed the Israelites. Frequently. But rather than send Ruth away, Boaz shows love to someone who's technically his enemy. And if we summarize what happens here in Luke chapter 2, what Boaz then does, he not only doesn't just send her away, he invites her to work alongside the other women harvesters to gather whatever she wants, not just the scraps at the end of the field. He says, just work alongside the other women and you can take whatever you want. And then he tells the men, he says, let her have whatever she wants. But he also invites her to his table with the other workers for lunch. That's in verse 14. And then he serves her. It says that he passed to her a roasted grain. And that might not seem odd to us. It might be like, oh, cool, everybody has a lunch break, a union-mandated lunch break. Everybody just took it together in the break room. But table fellowship back in the day was a big deal. You were who you shared meals with. That's why Jesus gets in trouble so much, because he's sharing meals with people he shouldn't be, according to customs and culture. And he's the master of the house. A master of the house would only serve you if you were an honored guest. Otherwise, he would not serve you. You see what Boaz is doing here? He's loving someone who's technically his enemy. Boaz is a worthy redeemer. See, your hope is too important to connect it to just anything. Naomi's hope was attached to her family's line. And because the object of her hope wasn't worth it, when she lost her husbands and her sons, her identity came crashing down. But the object of her hope should have been God. The object of our hope must be worthy of our hope because our identity is attached to it. And so if you slip, you need to make sure that the cord is going to hold you. Otherwise, your identity is going to come crashing down with it. And you might be here, you're like, I'm not sure what my identity is. You keep using that word. How do I determine what my identity is? My, my suggestion would just say, finish this sentence with the first thing that pops into your head. I am what? And that's your identity. And the reason why I say pops in your head, because if you're a Christian, you've learned to think your way out of that. They go, I am a child of God. I am a son of the Most High. I am a daughter of the King. No, I am a, what's your gut response? That's your identity. I am a mom. I am a husband. I am a student. I am a particular age category. I'm a teen or I am elderly. I am my job. I am my sexual orientation. I am my ethnicity. I am my political party. See, we attach our hope to the things that we find our identity in. So you may think that those things are worthy of it, but they really aren't. For instance, if your identity isn't being your, a mom, your hope is likely in your kids. And look, I imagine, I, I'm sure your kids are the best kids. They never complain about anything. Thanksgiving, they ate everything except the rolls. When all of our kids ate the rolls. So imagine your kids are awesome. But your kids aren't worthy of your hope because kids can be so fickle and emotional. And what happens is you become exhausted trying to make them happy. 
And as much as you love them, they may end up wanting nothing to do with you in their teenage or adult years. So what you'll end up doing, because your hope and identity are so attached to them, is you'll either try to smother them to win them over, or keep the peace by letting them live their lives and finding all the time that you're living with this soul-crushing hurt because all you want to do is be close to them. And they don't return it. Or if your identity is being a husband, your hope may be in being the protector and provider. But being protector and provider isn't worthy of your hope. So say your wife wants to go out late with her friends. How will you protect her if you're not with her? So you make an excuse why she can't go. Just some lame excuse. She can't go because of this reason. I need you here for X, Y, and Z thing. Or what you do, which most of us do in the 21st century, because we're 21st century men, and we realize that women should have their independence, we just do the right thing, and the most obvious thing is obsessively track them on our phones with Find My iPhone. Or we constantly text them and ask them when they're going to be home. But when you convince yourself that it's up to you to protect her, and you're not able to be there, what you're really doing when you do those kinds of things is you're really just protecting your control over her. Or if you have to be provider, what you'll do is you'll work more than you have to to give you this sense of fulfillment and providing for your wife, convincing yourself you're doing this to provide her fulfillment when really you're doing it to provide you fulfillment. Or if your identity isn't being a teenager or young adult, so your hope isn't getting the most out of these years. But getting the most out of life isn't worth putting your hope in. Rather, it can lead you to make choices that are life have lifelong consequences. Looking at sexually explicit material online creates addictive responses in your brain. We know that from science. Or having sexual intimacy outside of marriage doesn't, without a commitment, a lifelong commitment, that lifelong commitment's not going to be there if it ends up in pregnancy. Or partying can lead to addictions or accidents that you'll have to live with forever. See, it's all fun and games until life throws you a curveball. And your hope of getting the most out of life is cut short. Where it isn't all crack, was cracked up to be and your identity comes crashing down. Whatever it is, if we put our hope in things that aren't worthy of it, when they come down, so do we. If you connect your hope cord to anything other than God, when you slip, your identity and your hope come crashing down. So the object of your hope must be worthy, but it also must be reliable. Look up, pick up in verse 10. Then Ruth fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. A full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, whose wings you have come to take refuge. The thing, the object of your hope needs to be reliable. 
Like I said, you can't just throw out your hope to anything that's not worthy of it, but you also, it's, you also need to put your hope in things that are able to be counted on, that are reliable, something that can sustain your hope. See, this isn't a story of Boaz. It's not a story of Ruth. It's not a story of Naomi. It's a story of hope in God. Because where does Boaz say Ruth has taken refuge? To what or to who is her hope cord connected to? In a kinsman redeemer? And being a daughter-in-law? No, what does he say? He says her hope is, being, is connected to being under the Lord's wings. Have you ever seen a mother bird with her babies when, like, when a storm comes? She brings them under her wings. Or human moms do this too, right? When your kids are hurting, especially your little kids, what they do? They jump up on the couch next to you and they duck their heads in under your arms. They take refuge in you. Like a baby bird takes refuge in its mother's wings. And this is how the Bible speaks of God. The almighty, powerful God, the Bible speaks of him as a mother bird who cares for his young. And this is where the Bible says to put our hope is under, in refuge under God's wings. And do you know where the Bible particularly does this? In the Psalms of Lament. Psalm 17, 8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57, 1. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. When God's people experience harassment from their enemies, when they need a protection, when they were without hope, when they, also, they had no options left, where did they go to take refuge? Under the Lord's wings. See, Naomi's hope was connected to her family line, and when they died, her identity came crashing down. And instead of running under the Lord's wings, what does she do? She blames the Lord's hand. Ruth put herself under the Lord's wings. Naomi blames the Lord's hand. And I know many of us, many of you right now, life is putting you through the ringer. And even if you're not going through it, life has a way of bringing hardship to your front door. Your hope needs to be in something reliable. Because if we don't put our hope in God, we'll put our hope in things that can't sustain our hope. And when those things aren't reliable enough to hold us up, the core of our hope will snap and our identity will come crashing down. And instead of putting our hope in God and his providence and his promises and running to refuge under his wings, what we'll do is we'll run away and then we'll blame him. And then what will happen? We'll be called bitter. Well, because we become bitter, just like Naomi. But in Boaz, we see God in his providence making good on his promises. In Boaz, we see a picture of not a redeemer, but the redeemer, Jesus. It's a microcosm of Jesus right here. It's a picture of Jesus. See, but despite the fact that we put our hope and identity in other things, despite the fact that we run away from God's wings, despite the fact that we blame God when things don't go our way, God the Son took on human flesh, came to earth, showed love to us, 
his enemies because of our sin and chose to redeem us and make us kin, family members. Galatians 4 says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive, what? Adoption as sons. Jesus is the greater Boaz. It's common for us to say, you know, like in, in church circles, like, just go find your Boaz. We tell the young lady, just go find your Boaz. Your Boaz isn't out here. He's up there. Your, Jesus is the greater Boaz. Jesus could only redeem one, uh, sorry, Boaz could only redeem one family line. Jesus has redeemed billions of family lines through two millennia. Billions. Some of you are here today because Jesus redeemed your family line. My mom grew up in an abusive household. She had every reason to walk away from the Lord, but God redeemed her life and redeemed my family line so I stand before you today. Boaz invited one woman to dine with him. Jesus invites all to come dine with him at his table at the great banquet. Jesus invited, so Boaz invited one woman to work the harvest. Jesus invites all of us to work the harvest of bringing the lost into God's family. Boaz served one woman. Jesus served the world by laying down his life for us all. Jesus is the object worthy of our hope. He is the object reliable to stain us. And with that, he stains our hope and our identity with it. And that hope should cause a ripple effect in us and to others. See, what happens is Ruth returns home with a haul. She comes home with weeks worth of barley. Like, Ruth is no slouch. Right? We always paint this picture of Ruth. Oh, she's this nice young lady. You know, she does her best. She needs Boaz, though. Like, she just collected weeks worth of barley. She's no slouch. And what Naomi does, she comes out and she's like, whoa, where did you get all this grain from? Where did you go today? And Ruth's like, oh, yeah, um, I went to this field with this guy named Boaz. And she's like, no way. And Naomi said to her daughter in verse 20, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours one of our redeemers. Which, by the way, is just wild that Naomi knew about Boaz and doesn't tap into that, like his family and his wealth. She's so clouded by her present that she can't even see what God's doing behind the scenes. And But when she realizes it, it's like a stone that's thrown into a pond and it causes the first splash in her and then it starts to ripple out further and further and further. And the same thing Boaz, right? God gave Boaz hope. Boaz gave Ruth hope. And Ruth gives Naomi hope. And then Naomi's tune changes from the hand of the Lord has gone out against me and the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me to what? The Lord's kindness has not forsaken me or my husband and sons. That's what she's saying. Chapter 1, she's like, I'm bitter. God has turned his hand against me. Chapter 2, it's like, God has not forsaken me. Why? Because the splash of hope hit her and started to ripple out from her. See, hope in Jesus creates a ripple effect. 
See, when you realize that he's the object worthy of our hope, when he's the object reliable to sustain it, that hope creates a splash of hope in us and it ripples out to those around us. See, we can't claim to have hope in Jesus if others aren't hit by waves of hope when they're around us. People should leave your presence more hopeful than they did when they weren't with you. They really should. If that splash of hope happens to you, it should ripple out. And people should be affected by it. Don't tell me you love Jesus if when people leave you, they become more hopeless. They should become more hopeful. So make Jesus the object of your hope. Only Jesus is worthy of it. Only Jesus can sustain it. Only Jesus is reliable enough to sustain it. And some of us who are going through it right now just need to know that God sees you and he's provided the Redeemer who will one day remove all hardship. But for now, he's asking you to just run under my wings. Just run in. Just jump on the couch next to me and tuck in under my arms. Trust me. And when God pulls you out of that, be quick to praise him. Be quick to, when Naomi pulled out of that, she's quick to praise the Lord. Bless, may the Lord bless him. And so for, for many of us, though, who maybe aren't going really through it right now, my challenge to you just in this season, as things get darker, like it's dark outside, you might go to work, it's dark, you come back home, it's dark. Or you might log into your, yeah, everybody does remote work now. You might log into your laptop when it's dark, and when you log off, here it's dark, you know, whatever it might be. My challenge to you is just Google uh, Bible verses that say just, say, just Google Bible verses on hope and meditate on one of those a day. And just watch how that makes you more hopeful and watch how that ripples out of your life. But we have to refocus our identities so that when we're tempted to put our hope in other things, we can give ourselves these gospel reminders. My hope isn't in blank, being a mom, being a husband, being a teenager, being whatever. It's in my Redeemer, Jesus. And so when this creates these ripple effects, if our hope is in Jesus, we need to share that with people. We're doing Alpha Care, we're helping out Alpha Care's hope delivered. Hey, can we take this on together? And I'm not calling you out. I haven't donated anything, but the box out there is weak. Like, can we take this on? If Jesus has actually splashed hope in our lives to create a ripple effect, these mothers may never meet any of us, but they'll meet Jesus through our gifts. That's who we want them to meet. And I'm, look, I'm not asking you if you're like really going through it, you do not have the finances, that's one thing. Many of us can pull it off. Many of us can swing by a store and pick up some things. Let's take it on together. Let's make the ripple effects just hit people who never even will see us or talk to us. But there are a lot of people who will talk to you. And people are very open right now during Christmas to talk about spiritual things, right? There's songs on the radio about Jesus right now on stations that normally don't play songs about Jesus. It's a great opportunity to have these conversations. So share your faith with people, but also invite them to the Christmas Eve service. It's a simple way. Say, hey, I don't know if you're going anywhere for Christmas Eve. Would you love to come to church with me? We're going to have a lessons and carol service. We're going to sing a lot. We're going to hear a lot of passages of Scripture. We're going to sing a lot of carols in response. And that's going to be 9.30 on Christmas Eve. That's a Saturday, so just change a little bit. But same time, different day. All right? But be there and invite people to that. But listen, let's not settle for generic, bland, cultural 
Christmas type of hope. Like this Christmas, like, let's not settle for that. Let's be connected to Jesus who is worthy of our hope and who is reliable to sustain it. Amen? Let's pray. Hey, with everybody's eyes closed and heads bowed, if, if you're here today and you have never put your hope in Jesus and you're putting your hope in anything else, I just want to give you a moment to just silently come before Jesus. And just say, Jesus, I've been putting my hope in all these other things, and I just, I ask today that I would put my hope in you. Forgive me. Forgive me of everything I've done. Help me to just continue to live a life of hope in you. But Father, for the rest of us, may we be people who are people of hope. The hope that we have in the Redeemer, Jesus. And may that just be a ripple effect from us to others around us. Bring people into our lives so we can share our faith with them. Bring people into our lives so we can invite them to Christmas Eve. Lord, we, we ask that you would bring us reminders throughout the week to be generous and, and buy things for the Alpha Care campaign. But Lord, we ask ultimately that you would remind us that our hope is in Jesus and nothing else. And it's in his name we pray, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.